Chapter Twenty of the Friendly Terrace Quartet, or Peggy Raymond at the Poplars, by Harriet Lemis Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, A Runaway. Peggy stopped at each of the houses along the route to make inquiries regarding the government agent sent out to commandeer a goodly proportion of the household supplies prepared by painstaking housewives. The Mowry house stood empty, as its indignant mistress had left it, when she had hurried to impart her woes to her patriotic neighbor, Mrs. Lane. At the next house the woman was red-eyed. She didn't mind about anything except the corn, she explained lugubriously. But she had worked so hard over that corn. It was a hot spell in the heat, and all had brought on a sick headache. She didn't know what the government meant by begging folks to can all they could, and then sending an officer to take their things away. She talked in a soft, monotonous voice, punctuated by an occasional sob. At the next house there were no tears, but a great deal of shrill and angry speech. Yes, the government man had been along, and she told him what she thought of him. They'd bought bonds more than they could afford, she and her husband had, but never again. The day was warm, and bicycling along a country road in mid-afternoon painted Peggy's face an unbecoming crimson, but her indignation left her little thought to spare for physical discomfort however willing the impostor she was trailing might be to provide himself with a store of provisions peggy felt sure that a more sinister purpose was back of his efforts the thing looked to her like a deliberate move possibly a part of a wide-reaching scheme to undermine the confidence of people in the government to make them suspicious of every new appeal peggy's blood boiled she pedalled recklessly along the little footpath at the side of the road hoping to encounter a car containing several husky farmers to whom she could hand over her responsibility. But the only vehicles that passed were drawn by plodding horses and driven by women or children. In the end she came upon the object of her pursuit quite unexpectedly. A Ford car stood at the side of a pretty little cottage, looking so much at home that at first glance she took it for granted that it belonged there. Then she saw that the car was not empty, as she had thought for a moment, but that it carried quite a load boxes and baskets closely packed with jars of canned stuff from the open windows of the cottage came the sound of voices a woman was expostulating excitedly the voice that answered her was deep and gruff and menacing peggy was a girl who never lacked courage and in the present instance urged on by burning indignation she had never once thought of being afraid but something in the tones of the big bullying voice awoke her sleeping caution she hid her wheel in the bushes at the side of the road and approached the house keeping out of sight as far as possible from behind a clump of lilac bushes she peered through the window into the kitchen where an animated dialogue was taking place the man was as big and rough as his voice somehow she had not counted on his being quite so broad-shouldered and brutal he wore his hat tipped at a rakish angle and his long black cigar was tilted at another angle Peggy's plan to face him and denounce him as an impostor did not seem quite as simple as it had appeared earlier. "'You mean to tell me this is all the stuff you have put up?' the man was demanding as Peggy, behind the screening lilacs, composed herself to listen. "'You want to be careful, let me tell you, ma'am. You can't play horse with the United States government.' "'I haven't had so much time for canning things,' the woman said nervously. "'Well, I guess I'll take a look in your cellar. Hiding things when an agent of the government asked to see them is a serious offense in the eye of the law. Wait a minute, the woman cried, attempting to intercept him as he moved toward the cellar door. I've got some stuff down there that ain't mine. I did it for a friend. She bought the jars and sugar and everything. 
and she's going to pay me for my work when she takes it away peggy could not hear the man's answer though the rumble of his deep voice reached her ears blended with the shrill explanations and protests of the mistress of the cottage both voices grew faint peggy turned and looked at the car standing at a little distance from the house with its load of stolen provisions she moved quickly toward it an audacious idea had entered her head which sober second thought would have pronounced out of the question but peggy had no time for a second thought desperately she began cranking the machine her heart thumping so noisily that it would have been easy to mistake it for the throbbing of the engine it seemed an interminable time before the engine responded and at any minute the broad-shouldered ruffian with the uptilted cigar was likely to appear luckily the altercation in the cellar was becoming more violent the woman had raised her voice almost to a scream the man was shouting angrily when at length the welcome chug-chug of the engine answered her efforts peggy scrambled to the driver's seat and seized the wheel she had acted without the loss of a second and that was lucky for she had not a second to spare as the car started a bellow of rage reached her ears inarticulate at first it translated itself presently into speech stop stop or i'll fire peggy took the short cut to the gate it was a wide gate but her wheels struck one of the posts and it went over with an unpleasant crashing sound the car lurched and tipped and righted itself peggy could hear the woman screaming and the man roaring commands but she never looked back she struck the road and kept straight on whether the impostor she had balked was armed or not she did not know but in any case he did not fulfill his threat he did not fire peggy's ten-mile ride to town she had chosen as her destination was not without excitement she had met an automobile coming from another direction and had the greatest difficulty in keeping to her side of the road so much difficulty indeed that the driver of the other car shouted back something she could not understand but which sounded both indignant and insulting as she neared the town vehicles became more numerous but they showed a singular generosity in regard to the road turning out so as to leave her in undisputed possession vaguely peggy realized that they all seemed interested in her performance once she was almost sure that she ran over a chicken and the shock was not lessened by the certainty that it was the chicken's fault it had courted destruction by running in front of the car when it was too late to turn out or slow up for a moment the car seemed to contemplate jumping the fence and scaling an adjacent haystack but it changed its mind and went hurrying on its way before the men working in the field nearby could pick up the implements they had dropped peggy had been in the town she was approaching several times during her stay at the poplars she had thought it a rather small and sleepy town and she was really amazed to find so many people on the streets she blew her horn continuously and felt far more frightened than when the self-styled government agent had threatened to fire at length she reached the building which throughout this wild ride had been her objective a low brick building with a sign over the door announcing that it was the police station peggy's efforts to draw up to the curb were not altogether successful the car went further than she intended and collided with a telephone pole peggy went out over the wheel a man in blue uniform rushed out of the police station it was not till peggy had assured him a number of times that she was not hurt in the least that the concern of his manner changed to severity i'm afraid he said that i'll have to arrest you for reckless driving where's your operator's license i-i haven't any hm looks as if i should have to arrest you for that too why hello the chief of police was looking at peggy as if he expected her to explain something well what is it you haven't any license number on this car i suppose you know that's an offence in the eyes of the law it isn't my car 
I just took it. Apparently the chief of police was not accustomed to such frankness on the part of criminals. He took out his handkerchief and wiped his moist brow, and then Peggy began to explain. Almost from the first word the severity of her listener's manner, evidently a professional manner, was replaced by the geniality apparently characteristic of the normal man. And to Peggy's relief he agreed absolutely with her diagnosis of the case. "'Folks need to keep their eyes open nowadays,' he said. "'Of course this fellow may be just a clever sharper who saw an easy way to stock up for the winter, but I reckon he's one of a good many working systematically to discredit our government with our people. Now if you'll wait till I've locked up these things, I'll get my car and take you home. I want to see these women and tell them they can have their stuff after identifying it. And I want a description of this scamp.' "'There's a bicycle I borrowed to chase him with,' said Peggy. "'I left it in the bushes beside the road. "'If you wouldn't mind taking it back to Mrs. Lane's, "'for I'm beginning to feel that I've done all I can.' "'Sure thing. I'll take it home.' "'So you chased him on a bicycle, did you?' "'The chief of police chuckled appreciatively. "'Ever think of going into the Secret Service, miss? "'There's a good many ladies working on the quiet, they tell me.' "'Oh, no,' Peggy said hastily. "'Once is enough for me. Quite enough.' Peggy did not reach home till long after the dinner hour, so late indeed that Priscilla was secretly becoming worried, and when she arrived in the car of the chief of police, excitement reigned supreme. Peggy had not eaten a mouthful since her sandwiches at noon, but her plea that she was hungry was sternly ignored till she had explained in full. "'Well, I never!' Maud Elting drew a long breath. "'I think you're the luckiest girl I know, Peggy Raymond. Everything nice and exciting happens to you.' It's just like living in a story. I've had plenty of excitement this summer, I'll admit, but if you think it's nice, you're welcome to my share. Maud ignored Peggy's protest. And I just go on in the old humdrum way, nothing ever happening, and I don't think it's fair. Can't I go out and get a little supper now? asked Peggy plaintively. I'm almost starved. Yes, take the poor child to the kitchen, Marian, said Mrs. Lockwood, and find her something to eat and Peggy, too hungry to wait to change her clothes or even to remove the dust which streaked and smeared her tired face, followed Marian to test the resources of the pantry. It was while she was dispatching sandwiches at a surprising rate that Marian said thoughtfully, "'After all, it wasn't wasted, Peggy. You're sitting front with me this summer and watching me drive.' Peggy set down her glass of milk, her face suddenly thoughtful. "'Marian, do you know what it reminds me of?' "'Why, no, what is it?' Don't you remember what Mordecai said to Queen Esther? Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Why, Marian, it looks as if my doing what I did to-day had all been planned out beforehand, and as if I'd been made ready for that very thing. Why, if you hadn't made me drive the bus the first of the week, I never could have run off with that car the way I did to-day. And I was blaming myself for making you do it. You looked as if it were such a strain." "'I'm afraid I wasn't a very creditable pupil,' Peggy acknowledged, laughing nervously as she recalled some of the details of her wild flight. "'But anyway, I checked May to that rascal and didn't kill myself or anybody else. And now I'm going straight upstairs to bed, for I never was so tired in all my life.'" The women who identified their property at the police station within the next few days were not ungrateful. During Peggy's last week at the Poplars, she came home one afternoon to find that in her absence— a basket had been left at the house, a tag tied to the handle on which her name was inscribed. On examination, it proved to contain a good-sized ham, 
a delectable cheese, a number of jars of vegetables, and a generous supply of jellies and preserves. Peggy suggested that they all should be used for dinner the following evening, a proposal carried without a dissenting voice. The ham, after boiling, was struck full of cloves, sprinkled with sugar and browned in the oven, and the hungry girls did full justice to it, in spite of the temptations offered by peas and corn, string beans and tomatoes, to say nothing of six varieties of preserves. "'I'm certainly glad that no traitor to the U.S.A. is going to get a taste of this,' declared Amy, helping herself generously to some of Mrs. Lane's spiced gooseberry. "'It's almost a pity, Peggy, that you didn't let him get a bigger load before you ran off with it. Then we could have lived on preserves till it was time to go home.'" End of chapter 20